0: Hello? 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 Tim! Hey, how are you, my good man? Doing good. How about yourself? Well, hanging in. Doing what I can. Just just had to finish a light snack. Oh, these are strange days. So <laughs> yeah. what can I do for you? Well, you know, I thought we would talk about Doctor Who and wrestling. Okay. Yeah. So,
1: here's two questions. First question. When did you first watch Doctor Who?
0: Oh, I can tell you exactly. It was, uh, well, I don't know if it was November 1983, but it was shortly after, um, it was either late 83, early 84. The very first story I saw was The Five Doctors, the 20th anniversary story. Um, It was on PBS. It was on a weeknight. I want to say a Wednesday. I'm not 100% on that specific, but I remember watching it and digging it because it had a star field in the beginning. And I thought, oh, this is going to be just like Star Wars. (laughs) <laughs> and, um, cause I was like, whatever it was, oh shit, 84, I would have been eight. Let's say I would have been seven turning eight in early 84, let's say. So obviously anything with a star field and, and cool, weird costumes was, um, was wicked cool. So, uh, that was it. And I didn't really understand it for the next three years, but I kept watching.
1: Ah, uh, so you're, so you're one of the PBS kids. That's.
0: that's oh, perfect. absolutely. New, New, New Jersey network. Is this the real right. interview? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Okay, are we on? Are you taping?
1: Oh, yeah. I use a tape a call off the phone, so it makes it easy. I don't have to
0: actually do anything. (laughs) Oh, yeah, come on. Yeah, don't be a hero, please.
1: (laughs) But now, so as Doctor Who has progressed, so you've been through
0: six Doctors? Well, let's see. I mean, my first regeneration, yeah, I was watching Peter was the current. And, um, that was the season before Peter turned into Collins. So, I mean, Collins, Sylvester, McGann, Eccleston, Tennant. Oh, Josh, even Richard E. Grant, Scream of the oh, that's you know Jack right. Smith, Capaldi and, uh, Jody Whitaker. So yeah, I've been through numerous regenerations, uh, John Hurt, John Hurt, of course. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I forgot. I keep forgetting about him myself. Cause that's like, of all the doctors, he's actually like, other than Tennant, he's my favorite actor.
0: Of all the doctors, <laughs> oh god, yeah, oh god, and I'm, it's it's a shame. I'm, I you know I love. It, it is a shame because watching the role of the that doctor in the anniversary episode, you could easily see Eccleston nailing it, mm-hmm. and you could also easily see Paul McGann nailing it. Like I think there that story could have worked with you know this is the tortured ending of the Ace Doctor. You know what I mean? Yeah. But obviously, for various reasons, that didn't happen so they're stuck with a plan b um sorry i've got a dog in the room so you might hear me talking to her um, and um what what was i going to say uh if you can't do that okay you got to come up with a plan b i mean i don't know that you have a better choice than john hurt <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh i don't i don't know how in the world you know i mean the only you know it, it's as, as good a, a a thing what's wrong bud? i'm is this like an interview you're going to like play somewhere or you're going to transcribe it or Oh, I'm going to play it. Like, it's going to be on. It's perfect, actually. I'm okay. calling it Interviews at the End of the World. Oh, okay. Cool. Um, absolutely. Sorry my dog's distracting me for a second. Oh, you just went out, bud. Sorry about that. No, that's, that's perfect. We have cats here that are are surprisingly sedate
1: at the moment, but I expect any moment they'll be on my head.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's live TV, folks, if Chris doesn't edit this. <laughs> this is this is the glamour behind the scenes.
1: But now, what did you think of actually how they gave, began regeneration?
0: Um, I was, I was very pleased on a lot of levels because what they were able to do, I'm always, you know, and as a screenwriter, one of the, the big, just pillars, one of the most important things of how screenwriting works is to do a lot in a very short period of time. And I don't remember how long that short was. It wasn't long. I mean, what, six minutes, maybe eight minutes? I don't remember how long the Night of the Doctor was. Some fan I am. But um, (laughs) to be able to take the old school of the sisterhood of Karn, which is from a classic Brain of Morbius, one of the most talked-about classic series episodes, I believe Tom Baker has said it's his personal favorite. (laughs) To combine that with a brand-new... Doctor that's only been seen, I mean, let's face it, you, nobody really knew the Ace Doctor. He's only been on the TV movie mm-hmm. visually, so he's sort of this, like, ethereal figure. So, so to see him on TV, knew, so you combine the, a, a new Eighth Doctor with a new look, combining that with the sisterhood, which is very old. And then in the middle of it, Moffat still was able to sneak in um, mentions of all the big Finish companions, because the Eighth Doctor has really lived on the big Finish audios. Mm-hmm. So... To check all those boxes and introduce a new character, but played by the uh, Emma Campbell Jones, and to add the depth of oh my God, this is this is you're seeing a very small moment in a very big war, and Moffat was able to combine all of those elements in a way that was intriguing. Um, and even though it's the type of thing that has the beginning and the middle, not really an end, you know what I mean? But like <laughs> that's a difficult thing to do. That's a very difficult thing to pull off. And uh, my hat's off to them. Uh, it, it's harder than people think uh, without it making all Basil Expositioning and everything like that. So I was, <laughs> I, I'm always big on stuff that doesn't always answer things in Doctor Who, but adds levels of mystery. So to see, because we've only seen the Sisterhood once and we know they have cool powers. We know they work with the Time Lords and they're mysterious, regenerative powers and everything. And the elixir of life is, you know, you're learning all these things of like, uh-huh, and then to see them actually do like Uh, regeneration that's not really a regeneration that like is almost like a possession kind of thing i I think there's still a lot of there's certain questions about the war doctor that are out there um i thought it was very well done i was into it i was into it i should also probably point out i'm not the most critical person of doctor who i i watch doctor who to enjoy it and relax i i certainly can throw some criticisms at it but uh i i do i am one of those people who tends to forgive more than oh my god i can't believe they did that you know what i mean (laughs) I only criticize casting choices.
1: (laughs) That's my only thing. (laughs) That's fair enough. Yeah, because there are people, honestly, I think Doctor Who is often the every British actor works program. uh, And the fact that they've never used Hugh
0: Grant really saddens me. (laughs) Well, yes, they did. Hugh Grant was a doctor.
1: Oh, that's right.
0: What what Chris Chimnall has done. Is, is is Curse of Fatal Death, is that now canon? Is that is that now some mysterious doctor out there? You know what I mean? Like, is that something worth revisiting? Um, uh, and actually, it's funny because, you know, you're right. I think Hugh Grant would absolutely be a, a terrific addition uh, to the series. Um, but quite frankly, I want to give Hugh Grant and who all was it? Richard E. Grant, Jim Broadbent, Joanna mm-hmm. Lumley. I mean, I, I mean, Jonathan Price is the master. And, of course, Rowan Atkinson. And Julia, Sw- I'm going to say her name wrong. I can't. I can't. I can't say her name. I'm so sorry if you ever hear her Oh, I'm so embarrassed. Who uh, she played the companion and everything, but mm-hmm. um, they appeared in, a, in Doctor Who: The Curse of Fatal Death, which was the comic relief in circa '99, I think it was.
1: Yeah, 97, um, 99, somewhere in there. No, was that? Yeah, somewhere. We're, yeah, we
0: were still in Emerson when I, yeah. I remember getting the Doctor Who magazine, and we—I think it was our so that would have been like '98. They, that's when they needed, I think we're still at Emerson, memory, memory fumbles, as, as we know, but um, that's when they needed, like, Doctor Who needed them the most then, you know what I mean? Like, Timothy Dalton being in The End of Time, super cool. Wow, that's awesome. But, like, I remember, like, holy shit, Hugh Grant's doing a Doctor Who sketch, oh my god! Like, I think that was such a really cool thing, because it was, a, again, Stephen Moffat wrote it, and uh, it was very fun, it was tongue-in-cheek um and it really did raise doctor who's awareness again and you mm-hmm. had all these people like hugh grant because not only did they do the sh- the episode they did the interviews you know they did publicity for it so here you have people like hugh grant doing an interview saying oh gosh yes i love doctor who i grew up on it blah, blah, blah. and that really goes a long way i think toward raising uh the awareness of the show in the public eye if that makes sense you see you know what i mean like All of a sudden, Doctor Who was like this silly, nostalgic thing. Remember what? And then it's like, oh, hey, wait a second. I did what? I liked it, too. Oh, my God. And and everything. And I know it wasn't Mm -hmm. that long after the uh, Paul McGann movie, which was a very big hit in the U.K., just wasn't a big hit in the U.S.
1: Yeah. Which is a shame because McGann was great. Say again? I thought McGann was great as the Doctor. I thought that that – I didn't like the story as much as I liked him in the
0: story oh he was great no it's 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 the thing about the movie that's interesting is is it gonna is it gonna throw you off if i just let my dog outside real quick go ahead she's like whimpering we can still continue i'm sorry she's whimpering at me for some reason and i just want to make sure it could be because i'm talking out loud (laughs) which i don't do as a bachelor who lives alone um (laughs) the thing about the uh hush, hush hush bud um the thing about the, the, the pilot, the thing about the TV movie is that it is, it's a proper pilot and mm-hmm. it was designed and written, you know, with four or five movies in mind, um, to go after it, you know, cause at the time I believe alienation was born, but alienation was running as two hour movies quarterly on Fox. Right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I think they were going to do a similar thing with two where who was going to not be a 13 episode or like a star Trek with the 26 episode syndication order. Um, but with, uh, like, Hey, we can make four TV movies once every quarter, but because it, it didn't go anywhere or cause it fell against Roseanne, it went up against the John Goodman heart attack episode. Um, yeah. So that's why it got killed. It actually got a ton of publicity. Um, the thing also that hurt it is I believe it was this close to getting the TV guide cover okay. and instead they put Tom Selleck on friends on the cover oh, yeah. and that was actually that that's sh- and it's one of those weird things where it's like for anybody listening to this that's like what's tv guide like before the internet and stuff i mean tv guide was the magazine to get on the cover of to be featured in um Copi. be nice the um uh sorry about that no she doesn't need to practice social distancing <laughs> <laughs> the the um yes um uh the TV being on the cover of TV Guide was a very big deal. Like um I know that uh, before we talk about wrestling, like Bruce Pritchard on his podcast recently talked about how just huge a deal it was for them to get Steve Austin on the cover of TV Guide in 1998. Like that's just one of those you're avail- You are now in the center of pop culture. That that was a big deal um in the eighties, seventies, eighties and nineties, to be on the cover of T V Guide means you made it, you know, like because it was at every grocery store, every seven eleven, every bookstore. T V Guide was always front and center. So even if people didn't buy T V Guide, they saw the cover. Mm-hmm. And that's a major uh major piece of exposure. And I think that would have been probably would have helped the show as well, but these are the vagaries of T V.
1: Yeah. Yes. And you brought up wrestling, funny. Um <laughs> So let me ask you, what brought you in from being a guy who watched wrestling to being a wrestling fanatic?
0: Oh, oh gosh. Where did really go? Oh man. That's a good one. Um sorry I'm, being, I'm not trying to, I'm being interviewed right now actually. It's hey, a it's nice. a really big uh, fanzine expert. This is a you know <laughs> major deal for me. It's like being on T V guys. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> What made me a wrestling fanatic? I don't, gosh, I don't know if I have a good answer for you. Um, I remember, like, getting wrest like, like, I started watching because everybody was watching wrestling. You know what I mean? This was 19, when I really, the first show I went to was in 1985. Um, one, of the, one of the matches I saw that's a fun piece of trivia was Barry O versus the late quick draw Rick McGraw nice and the heart foundation against sd jones and george wells and tito santana magnificent morocco um this is mm. a high school show this was like their d show that night but we still got some stars um wow. um yeah not bad and uh so i was watching on and off and um oh my gosh here's a funny one i remember it's funny what, what one remembers in their old age when I was a little kid, I remember all the kids at school talking about WrestleMania II being on TV. Mm-hmm. So I went to watch WrestleMania two. I was like, oh, I better watch. All the kids are talking about it. And I ended up just watching this episode of Primetime Wrestling because I didn't understand the difference. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that you had to go buy a box and order it from cable. So I'm just watching Primetime Wrestling like, I don't think this is WrestleMania two. So <laughs> it really wasn't until 1987, And, oh, I mean, I don't know, it's it's such a philosophical question you're asking me. Uh, I'm doing my best to to crystallize it, (laughs) because I remember everybody watched WWF at school, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody was a Hulkamaniac. Everybody loved, you know, Sergeant Slaughter and fucking Iron Sheik. And gosh, there were neighbors. There were kids um, that I was neighbors with. And... Uh, we went over to watch, you know, live Madison Square Garden Network TV, you know, watching wrestling and all that stuff. So it was WWF was the New Jersey Zeitgeist. I grew up in Central New Jersey. And then one day, I'm watching TV on a Saturday. Doctor Who's on at 9 o'clock on New Jersey Network.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: I'm just sort of clicking around the channels. I had the TV to myself as a little kid. I mean, maybe I had a babysitter, I don't remember. And I came across this other wrestling at 6.05 on T V S. And I was like, what is this? Who are these guys? And it was, and all these, all these wrestlers, all these bad guy wrestlers were talking about this guy named Dusty Rhodes. You yeah. know, and yeah. Um, everybody's obsessed about this Dusty Rhodes guy. And this guy named uh, Ric Flair came out wearing a suit and sunglasses with long, shock-white hair. And I was just, what the? What is this? What kind of wrestling is this? And nobody, had, like, I'd go to school and be like, did you guys watch Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes? Nobody knew what I was talking about. So I, I just sort of, like, was like, well, just got fascinated by this whole world of wrestling. And I remember uh, asking my mom for some wrestling magazines. And mm. the wrestling magazines back in the day, like, I got Wrestling All-Stars. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, the George Napolitano magazine. But it was wild cause I'm going through it and cause you would see, you know, articles about Hulk Hogan, of course, and Roddy Piper, and then I, you know, Dusty Rhodes and Ric Flair, but I also got to read like, as, you know, as a kid, I mean, geez, again, I'm like 10 years old. So my mind is a sponge. So I'm just reading about all of these, like, whoa, like I'm reading the stories. I'm catching up on the thing. And then actually there was another magazine called, oh gosh, I think it was the pro wrestling illustrated annual
1: which would reprint
0: articles from like the early, late seventies and early eighties.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I just open, and you would see like, there was this thing called Memphis and this guy named Jerry, the King Lawler, and he was the champion there. And then there was this place, the Pacific Northwest, which had this guy, Rip Oliver. And then there were these brothers in Texas called the Von Erichs. And I'm like, what is all this? It was just this wide open world. And I wanted to know everything about it. You know, I, and that's probably the closest thing I could tell you. Cause I remember there was also a cartoon show called, well, there's two, there was Voltron and Robotech, right? Oh yeah. And those, the, both of those cartoon shows had all of these other worlds and permutations and generations as well. Like there's a whole Robo uh, Voltron series that never aired in the U S <laughs> and you know, everybody was dying to get their hands on that. So I think it was just a matter of. That's, that's probably the closest way I could put that. Hopefully, that makes a certain sense. Where I was at the right age, where I was exposed to this like gigantic world of stuff mm-hmm. that nobody oh, yeah. else really knew about. At the t- I mean, everybody. I mean, other people knew, but I'm talking about my little ten-year-old sphere of events. <laughs> You know what I mean? In my little <laughs> schoolyard, obviously, <laughs> millions of other people knew about it, but I just meant like where I was, and I just I, that was it. It was my world. I, I want to know everything about all those worlds. I nice. want to know anything, everything about that stuff, and um, <laughs> still do. And much, much like yourself, I believe you have a very similar uh, uh, oh. uh, viewpoint and, and thirst and appetite for that world.
1: Oh yeah, and I mean, lately it's been you know having the extra time now because we're all sheltering from doom. Uh, that you know, I've been going back, and every night I'm watching a different a different set. I've watched you know, uh, I did a Jeff Cobb set of matches. I did a Ricochet. Uh, you know, the little guys. <laughs> um, but tonight it's going to be going back to Starcade, And I'm watching my five favorite Starcade matches. And it made me realize, you know, where I really, I'd always been watching wrestling. But I became a nut because of one match. And mm-hmm. it's Winkle versus Hennig, the 60-minute draw on Christmas. I remember that.
0: I watched that that year, yeah.
1: Yeah. That, yeah uh, Kurt, and,
0: Kurt Hennig blocks his tooth in that match, right?
1: Yes, he did. Yeah, <laughs> double juice with a uh, uh, Bockwinkle had the figure four on as time expired. It was oh such a great match that every time they put a Bockwinkle uh, Hennig match on any DVD, it's always the Super Clash match. But I thought the sixty-minute draw was the best. It was at that point, it was the best thing I had ever seen. And you know, now that I've oh, gone man, back. yeah, yeah,
0: I would suggest it holds up. Oh, um, it's funny, cause I remember not only watching that match, cause that was on ESPN, we had it, you know, everybody had it, I think, around the country, mm-hmm. on four o'clock weekdays, right? Yep. Well, and I remember watching one, you, you, oh really? Okay, Um so <laughs> I remember watching, well it's wild, there's two AWA memories I have. One is, um That match, well, actually, I have a bunch. There was that match, another great AWA match, and I was able to tell him this years later when I worked with him on a show, I was able to tell Shawn Michaels how much I loved the matches with Buddy Rose and Doug Summers with him and Marty Gennetti. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are – and at the time, here's the wild thing, too. 1987, turn on WWF to get Hart Foundation versus Bulldogs, Rougeaus, or Killer Bees. Wow. Mm -hmm. NWA, you get Rock and Roll Express versus Midnight Express. Wow. AWA, Midnight Rockers versus Buddy Rose and Doug Summers. Mm -hmm. Take that, 70s Crockett. No, I mean, that is tag team excellence anywhere. Oh, and then if if you get world class, you'll probably see Yvonne Harrison and Freebirds or something because they were always replaying that stuff. I mean, that is tag team golden age. But Mm -hmm. I remember the Bachwinkle heading match, and I remember they did an episode, and it's a shame, Vern Gagne doesn't get credit for being smart. Everybody just runs him down for a lot of the stuff he did wrong, but he did some really smart shit sometimes. Pardon my French. He did some really (laughs) smart stuff where um, he's, I remember they did a, not only did they show that episode, they showed that match. There was an episode where they did a replay of a match and Kurt Hennig and Nick Bachnick were sitting with each other in suits like they're a pair of football players. Like, well, you know, uh, when Nick had me in the figure four, I thought I was going to pass out. Good one, Nick. And it was like, (laughs) so like real athletes as opposed to good guy, bad guy. They were (laughs) just like, nope, we are two athletes who are competing for the same title. So of course it was intense. And that was fascinating to me. I remember that it was uh, Vern Gagne. Good on you. That was that was really well and neatly done. And it's funny because years later you would see, like those Jim Ross sit down interviews. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? With the with the wrestlers taking the mask off, like the stuff you do with Foley and Austin. And I believe Ring of Honor has done certain things that are kind of like that. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm not sure if AEW and New Japan, but I know that they've done a little bit more of a sportsmanship kind of. Hey, we're just two competitors. The is good and sometimes really refreshing in the world, in, in the good guy, bad guy world. It's just good to mix it up a little bit, if that all makes sense. Oh, yeah. No, and I remember that. I specifically remember that.
1: And the best part about it was as they were rewatching segments of it, they were analyzing, well, here I'm focusing on the knee. Yeah. Because I'm and it was like, oh, my God, this is what, and one thing, Nick Bockwinkle in that whole thing, that is why Nick Bockwinkle is, in my opinion, the smartest wrestler who has ever lived. Could um, be. Yeah, that,
0: if you have a good argument on your side.
1: Yeah, that and hooking and hitching his uh, horse to Ray Stevens in San Francisco was not a
0: bad idea either.
1: <laughs> um, and, Nothing and,
0: wrong with that. Hey, hey yeah. who's, who's the best one? Malenko, Guerrero, or Benoit? You will be able to – everybody has an argument as to which one was really the best.
1: Sure, and right. I know
0: that's tricky to talk about with the circumstances and everything, but just to, and I'm not trying to be light about it, but mm-hmm. I'm just saying, like, I mean, who's better, Savage or Steamboat? team <laughs> You know what I mean? Like it, it either Whichever one you pick, you have a good argument on your side.
1: That's true. I mean, there's, there's the one that for me is that is who's Flair's best opponent. And there's everyone, every different aspect you could look at, there's a different person for that. You know, who mm-hmm. brought out the best in Flair's interviews, who brought out the best in Flair in the ring, uh, who brought out the best in Flair angles. Uh, I mean, and in that case, it's obviously Terry
0: Funk. Uh, but I mean, but the, but one of the smartest things in the world you did, they did, and it was messed up because Jim Ross will say on his podcast a million times how just chaotic everything was in 1989 and how it's a miracle they got any kind of show off the ground. Mm-hmm. Was so you do Flair and Steamboat, and at the time that was considered the trilogy of trilogies. That was these three best wrestling matches uh, of the of the 80s of the modern era. Of that, everybody was agreeing with that, and even like the mm-hmm. stories of WWF guys get me a tape of Flair and Steamboat. Oh my God. So you have the three best wrestling matches of the year. Where do you go from there? And to turn around and say, let's bring in a brawler and we're going to fight. God, that is just so smart. Because, like, if if Flair just went into another program with great wrestling, I don't know that that would have worked as well. It's The shadow of Flair and Steamboat was so long. So Mm -hmm. we then end up and turn around and turn Flair babyface and then have him just fight Terry Funk. Like, I don't know, last time you watched that Bash 89 match, it mm-hmm. is just a fight. Like, if you watch the flare, any Flair Steamboat and then watch the Flair Funk, talk about the, the brilliant versatility of Rick. Everybody says, oh, Flair just wrestled the same match. B.S. No. No. no way. <laughs> you are not paying attention because Rick Flair knew exactly what to do to change mm-hmm. it up and switch it around and be like, nope, can't just do it. Because you know, if we do another Flair Steamboat, another great wrestling, believe it or not, people will get bored. So you've got to yeah. mix it up. You've got to figure out a new um, – uh, and the other thing, too, is Flare and Steamboat, apparently, like, it, it didn't light the house on fire when it came to box office. No. Like, it, it 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 was not famous for that. Like, I was shocked to hear that that one clash in New Orleans only had, like, 8,000 people there. Mm-hmm. And the weird, big, you know?
1: Yeah, the big problem yeah. was that it was a company that did not have its legs under it. And – yeah. Partly because it had been cut off at the knee so many times. <laughs> but, I mean, the, the best thing about, I think, about going, transitioning to funk was, I often say that the, the last great matches of the 80s were Flair Steamboat. The first mm-hmm. matches of the 90s were Flair Funk because... Oh, sure. That, yeah, that predicted what wrestling became when it exploded in, you know, 93, mm-hmm. 4, 5, six. And, oh, yeah, yeah, that
0: was, that's the, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but no, like, yeah, that's a Stone Cold, Steve Austin-style match, Flair Funk. Totally. Th- just punch, and it still tells a story, and, and ECW, everything in ECW was a love letter to Flair and Funk. Let, mm-hmm. let me throw one at you, though, because I've been watching a ton of WCW 90 stuff, because uh, that, that was also a big thing I grew up on as part of, you know, high school and formative years. People underestimate Surfer Sting um okay. i have been blown away by some of the stuff like this okay sting invader yeah everybody knows that match and it's awesome and it's amazing and by the way like give 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 sting some credit because he had the respect to get vader to bounce around for him i <laughs> mean <laughs> nobody outside of stan Hansen made vader bump the way sting did and That's true. <laughs> sting and uh, the war games 92 is my favorite war games and I'd mean, I forgotten about this spot. And at the time, I didn't really care about it because I was not a bodybuilder. I wasn't in the muscles. I wasn't in that. Dude, Sting Gorilla Presses Rick
1: Root. That's right.
0: Into the ceiling of the cage. And I rewound, and I'm like, how? <laughs> oh, pure strength. And, yeah. I mean, that is an amazing spot. And then there's a clash. I think it's June of 91. I think it's, yeah, it's the one with Flair and Bobby Eaton in the two, two out of three. Sting mm-hmm. gets the best match out of Nikita Koloff outside of the Midnight Express and the Horsemen. Sting and Nikita will call up one-on-one. It's unreal. And I'm like, because everybody loves the Crow Sting as well. They should. It's super cool. But I'm like, I, as I'm going through my WCJ, and especially, the, and again, almost going back to what we're talking about with Doctor Who, Sting came along when the company needed him the most. Mm-hmm. When, when you needed a guy, Flair was in the WWF, the company was on its ass, Nothing was going well. The hirings, firings at the top, pay cuts, but Sting turned it on every night. That dude knew his new head. He was, um, he took on that role. He took on that role of being the guy that's like, all right, I got to steal it. I got to steal yeah. Michelle. And here, so he's the one I revisit.
1: Yeah, there's a guy who you can see the difference in his work between before he worked with the great Muda and after.
0: Oh, sure, yeah.
1: You can definitely – like 89, that program between the two of them was highly underrated, and no one talks about but, it today.
0: But, but it was, you know who I bet right. – I, I, I bet you would agree with that, and I bet you this. I bet you Muda would say the same thing about Sting, because Muda went back to Japan after doing so many years in America because he was in territories before he became Muda, mm-hmm. and he was in Puerto Rico and stuff. He went back to Japan, and he knew how to be a baby face. He knew how to do like big, that kind of big over the top American style of uh, storytelling. So mm-hmm. I, I would, I think both Muda and Sting, I think you're absolutely right. But I think they both walked away like, hmm, learn something else for the toolbox. <laughs> you know, got something <laughs> else that I could use when, when I need it. Because he didn't forget that, you know, when he was Muto, he's the biggest baby face in Japan. Yeah. Oh, absolutely.
1: And what's great, I think that a lot of people forget about uh, Muto is... Because when people think of Muta, they think of they think of some of the stuff he did in WCW sometimes, but it's usually like the Takata stuff. What people forget is he made the figure four, the biggest submission move in Japan for three years.
0: That's right. I forgot about that. You're <laughs> That's right. That's absolutely right. Yeah.
1: It's like that's that. It's those little bits like that that I think you know that keep me watching
0: <laughs> forever and always. <laughs> Yeah, wow, wow. So I don't know, we really went in the weeds there. I hope <laughs> But you know what?
1: It's perfect. And you know, I gotta start to make the kids some dinner. But Tim, it is always great to chat with you.
0: Um, yeah, sure. And uh good luck with the Star team matches. I still say, um that Magnete and Toby Blanchard, like I-, I cheer up every time that's on. It's every great, time it's... I see that match I cheer up. That is that is a quintessential pro wrestling story match and uh for those who are not squeamish it's a great introduction of what <laughs> pro wrestling is
1: yeah and i'm watching it that's the second match i'm going to watch after my favorite piper valentine
0: uh oh god yeah oh god, absolutely it was...
1: yeah and then i'm going to finish it off with flair vader <laughs>
0: uh well my friend i hope it we'll was able to offer you something useful thank you for having me you've honored me with uh with, with including me now uh, uh, thanks fantastic. for bearing with the uh, with the dog and stuff. Yeah, if you need to do any more, let me know. I'm, you know, we're all around. I'm, I'm still sitting. I'm still writing my stories and just checking in on people during this uh, strange time. So, well, that's, you know, what I'm doing. I'm working my work and I'm
1: uh, making sure kids don't eat each other.
0: So. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yeah. That's much more important than the stuff I'm doing. Well, listen. uh, All my best wishes to the entire family, to to you and yours and everything. And uh, and uh, we'll we'll talk more offline. But always a pleasure, my good man. Always a pleasure, big guy. Talk to you later. <laughs> All the best. Stay awesome.